Radio. Let's talk pets. Good day from California. Welcome to the Anything Possible podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Courtney. I'm a veterinary surgeon, former co-host of Pet Talk and Nat Geo Wild, host of Vet Candy Watch, and I'm just an all-around pet lover. Here, we celebrate the fact that everywhere you look, there is the beauty of the human-animal bond. That bond influences our everyday lives, and lucky for me, I get to talk to some of the most fascinating and engaging people that help to explore and strengthen that bond. Before we get started, I want to be sure to let everyone out there know how to get in contact with me. If you have any questions, thoughts, or topic discussions, you could reach me at DrCourtneyDVM on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, on Pet Life Radio. Questions with positivity and love will get answered with priority, but not exclusivity, so I'll pretty much answer anything. Let's talk about your replacement. When somebody says, I'm going to find your replacement, how does that make you feel? For some of us, it can be a little offensive. Our ego gets in the way. Who could possibly replace me, you might ask? I'm sure there's no one that can replace me. Well, the truth is, regardless of your vocation or your profession, schools are looking for your replacement right now. Well, maybe not your exact replacement, because we are truly unique and different in the attributes we bring to the table, but they are looking to replenish the talent pool that they lose every year through attrition. That attrition because people get older, they retire, I mean, let's face it, people die, or they fall in love with a different profession, or there's other reasons. So it's vital that young talent is nurtured and bolstered through education. Take veterinary medicine, for example. Nearly 20% of veterinarians are anticipated to retire in the next decade. The number of veterinarians has been increasing by about 2.2% every year for a decade, but will that growth be enough to meet demand? Last year, the Department of Agriculture identified 197 areas considered to have a shortage of veterinarians. In AVMA analysis, Delaware and West Virginia were among the states that were identified with shortages of veterinarians, with the highest ratio of veterinarians to homes being one veterinarian for every 2,000 to 3,000 houses. That disparity is happening despite the fact that the profession is consistently growing as more and more veterinarians graduate. The 2.2% growth rate of veterinarians per year may accelerate further now that more veterinary colleges are opening, including the most recent additions of the University of Arizona and Long Island University. So what impact has the pandemic had on vet school applications? This is a really uneasy and anxious time for some. I know I was extremely nervous in the year I was applying to vet school. I can only imagine how that anxiety must be augmented in the face of a pandemic. And what impact will this pandemic have on veterinary medical learning? How do we educate young veterinary talent in the middle of a pandemic? For me, one-on-one teacher time and fellowshipping with my peers was an integral part of my education. Will students have to give that up completely or learn to evolve? In fact, as I think about it, I have to give a shout out to my vet school study group because without them, I don't know how I would have made it through veterinary school. But much of that educational experience for vet students has been upended. Although many veterinary schools had already integrated distance learning or e-learning into their curriculum to some degree before the pandemic, there's been a rush to put all education online amid the crisis. 
whether it's basic technical issues, access to learning materials, or how students can be graded by their professors. There's so many questions to answer about how to educate young veterinary students in the middle of a pandemic. In this conversation, I was joined by Dr. Phil Nelson. Dr. Nelson is a graduate of Tuskegee University. He was the Associate Dean of Mississippi State University College of Veterinary Medicine, and now he is the Dean of Western University College of Veterinary Medicine, and he has served in that role for the past 13 years. He helps me understand what measures he had to take when the pandemic hit and how Western students are uniquely positioned to succeed despite the crisis. And in the nicest way possible, he explains the process behind finding my replacement. This was truly a fascinating conversation. So I want to welcome Dr. Phil Nelson to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nelson. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. Well, I'm so happy to hear that you're here on this podcast because, uh, listen, not too often, and just allow me to nerd out a little bit, not too often do we get a chance to speak to a dean. So this is a really an honor, and I know your time is super short and precious, so every spare minute, is we are super grateful. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. I really am. Well, we do something on Anything Possible, and for... Uh, all the viewers out there, most of the time, or all the time, we listen. It's just audio only. So while you're on your commute, or if you're at home, or in your living room, just enjoying the podcast. But this is one of the inaugural episodes we get to do a video component. So everybody who's listening, just audio only. Uh, I hope you enjoy. But then also there is a video component as well. We'll throw it up online so you can check it out. And everybody on uh, on anything possible, they love the set the scene aspect we do. So we do something called set the scene. So for our, our listeners out there, set the scene for us on how you developed the love for animals and then he, how you eventually came through a pretty illustrious veterinary career eventually to end up as Dean. So I could probably ask you the same question and I think I'd, I'd come up with the same answer. When students apply to vet school, I always ask them how many of them had, have, have wanted to be a veterinarian since they were in the third or fourth grade. And so it, I don't think there's anything that, that happened to me that right. made me love animals. I think it just happened. Yeah. I think it's part of, of our core. And for many of us, it's a calling. Yes. And, and many of us who are fortunate enough to get in, we feel gratified. We feel fulfilled just being a veterinarian. So I don't think there's anything magical about it other than the fact that it's deep in our DNA. And I can't explain it any better than that. Yeah, it's, it's actually incredible because when you think about the process, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, just so you think about the process of actually getting into veterinary school, a lot of it is happening around this time of year. And so to have a crisis like this around this time of year must be a complete hurdle and sort of a really turbulent time for all those applying to vet school. But talk to us a little bit about just how you became Dean, number one, and then number two, and this is going to sound, I apologize for the, such a rudimentary question, but a lot of people listening, they don't actually know what a Dean does. So talk to us a little bit about how you became Dean, and then just what your day-to-day -day life is like. Sure, because I'm not sure I know what a Dean does either. Um, <laughs> but you're figuring it out I, as yeah, that goes on. I, I, think I, I think I have to figure that out on a daily basis. All right, we'll um, figure it out together. So how did I become a Dean? Now, that is a different story than how I, how I became a veterinarian. Okay. Uh, I do believe that I was influenced being uh, administration and education by my father and his experiences. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. My father was uh, director of food service at Jackson State University. And 
we talked a lot when he came home. I remember even from a from a young age, from six years up, I was fascinated by his interaction with faculty and with staff and the views of faculty versus staff. And he was a people person. He was a very good manager financially as well as uh, personnel-wise. And I had no idea. I had no appreciation for that. The other happenstance, I think, that particularly led me into education was the fact that I grew up in a segregated school system in uh, Mississippi, and there were only a few Black-only public schools that I could go to. But Jackson State had a laboratory school that for the first six years of my education, I was fortunate enough to attend a private school on a university campus. Then, because my sister had asthma and my father was the only person who drove in our family, he wanted her close to to him in case she had an asthma attack, et cetera. So I would go to school. We lived on the north side of town. Jackson State's on the southwest side of town. And when I get out of school, my sisters and I would walk to the dining hall and essentially do our lesson in his conference room. Wow. And I got to watch a lot of his meetings with his staff while doing my lesson because my job is to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) <laughs> and not and and not be noticed. Were you good at that, keeping your mouth shut? Oh, then yes, because <laughs> yeah, I was I was very good at keeping my mouth shut in front of my father. Right. Now, and that's why nobody can can control my mouth now. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't know it then. But I was being pruned and developed then. I went through about four years of of that routine, and I saw some meetings that occurred annually every year that I could, I can almost spout the speeches that he would give new staff members. And so I really believe that was the beginning of my desire to be in administration. I don't think I ever wanted to be a dean. Right. You know, I think I I actually wanted to be a president, but uh, I had no idea what the, what the stepping stones were. Right. It is a process. It is a sequence. I mean, when you think about the, what you went through, particularly what you said, I went to a segregated school system, you know, going through that experience and now arriving to this pinnacle of, of Dean and having aspirations to be a president are pretty incredible. But as Dean, you mentioned something about watching your father managing people and being a people person. How, how was it? What was the experience like trying to manage people in the middle of a, an erupting pandemic or an erupting crisis that was sweeping the globe. What was that like managing people and trying to facilitate a veterinary medical education with your students and professors? Well, I must say that it was probably a lot easier for me because of the caliber of people that I was managing than it was for people that, than it was for my father who had to manage people who did not have a high school education. Right. Uh, and that were doing a lot of manual labor in cooking, et cetera, and didn't have a career. I'm very fortunate in that I'm, I'm blessed and, and enjoy the challenge of working with highly educated people who are committed to what they're doing. Right. And so the challenge was more of a schedule. There was just so much to do sure. to convert the curriculum. But managing the people was not a problem. Almost to a person, faculty and staff, they understood what had to be done and their commitment was to the student. 
it wasn't, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time bemoaning the fact that we had to do the work. Yes. You know, it was upon us. And so the real issue was getting all of the work done in a compressed time period. And if we hadn't already been moving in, in this direction, and by the way, if we hadn't been dealing with digital natives, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we could have done this. Well, I'm pretty sure we could have done this 10 years ago. That's a great point. I mean, people are bemoaning the idea of uh, the technological issues that we're having and how access to different internet or hardware, software, and, you know, these teleconferences. But the reality is, this is a huge achievement and a huge leap forward in terms of teleconferencing and telehealth than we would have been 10 years ago. That's a really important point. Yes, it is. But it doesn't change the educational pedagogy or and educational principles that have to be applied. And I think we're also fortunate that we're one of the uh, cutting edge colleges that has experimented with turning education on its head, like the flip classroom. That's the popular vernacular of the day. Right. But But because we've always looked at how best to promote learning, rather than induce teaching, I think that also made it a little easier for us to do it. But I'm very proud of the, of the entire profession because everybody has in education has had to do this. Well, you know? you, sorry to interrupt, but a really important phrase you just mentioned, how do you promote learning instead of inducing teaching? Could you just take a deep dive on that a little bit? What, what do you mean exactly by that? Well, if you start with a glass of water that's half full. Right. You and I were trained through the time-honored method of lectures and, you know, and having our veneered instructors fill our heads with knowledge, so to right. speak. Shout right? out to Tuskegee. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> However, that's a bit of an illusion. The lectures are important. The lectures were important, at least in informing us of what was important. But the actual learning occurred at night. Yeah. You know, hopefully, even lecturers w would hope that you would have enough interest to become familiar with the material that they were going to present. But eventually, educators seem to approach education by filling the half class with water or That's filling your head with knowledge. And we took credit for that. When in reality, you filled it yourself. You went and found the well and dipped the glass in, but it was a struggle, right. you know, to essentially fill that glass. And slowly we recognized that in order for a student to truly achieve their potential, our job is to serve as guides, God. not sages, Yes, you know. And once you have become familiar with an area of knowledge, then you can gain a lot more from the sages yes, yes on your you know on your own so so our whole curriculum is designed to promote the need to know to let the student just as i said the major outcome of a lecture is for is was that we understood what was important as a matter of fact many times at the end of the lecture we would ask when we were in school we would ask so what's really important what do i have to study right Right? In order to pre get prepared for the exam. Yes. 
right? And then we would really write notes when the teacher would say, well, I'm going to ask you about this, and I'm going to ask you about that. Well, a curriculum that leaves it to the student to discover what's really important. And that means allowing the student to, to, to know how to use peer review literature and primary literature and not just textbooks, and then to see that across a certain uh, breadth of textbooks, certain information keeps coming up. Then they self-select what's important. And, and we've discovered that that self-selection aligns with what experts think is important. And that is the process of self-discovery. And, and for, it, sorry to interrupt, ahead. but for people who uh, may not know that Western University is unique in the sense that their curriculum is problem-based in its foundations. And what I love about that is that, you know, education, I'm sure many would agree that for a large part, it is a self-motivated learning experience. And so if you are self-motivated, if that is your idea of learning, is to basically go out and seek that information, it sounds like that you are sort of adhering to that old proverb, you know, give a man a fish versus teaching a man how to fish. Do you feel like that has had real life implications, particularly during this crisis time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest, most of education is moving that way, but when you have decades of of experiences of design, et cetera, it's tough to change the ship, the direction of the ship, you know. But I, I like to compare it to the Sherlock Holmes series. You know, Sherlock Holmes essentially was a showman and kept Watson entertained daily by exposing his intellect. The problem with the Sherlock Holmes stories is, is that he never taught Watson how he made those minute observations. Right. You know, he never told him the system of observation. He just, he essentially made his observations as most experts do. And we, through Watson, get to observe him come to these uh, amazing deductions. And yet, that's how medicine works. And so our goal is to help students discover how to make those observations so that they can come to their own deductions. Now, Western students have been uniquely positioned because of just different. And I sort of, I would use the word untraditional, even though you said that a lot of veterinary curriculums are moving in that direction. But because of their untraditional style of education, and they've been uniquely positioned to still excel in the middle of a crisis, still excel in the middle of a pandemic, how do you see it? as veterinary students have been uniquely positioned to excel during times like this, particularly through the prism of a first-year student is different than a fourth-year student, and somehow you've bridged the gap so that first-years and fourth-years are still benefiting from this education. How has Western been able to do that, or you as dean been able to do that? So I think there was a point when medical education was so focused on the theoretical and on the didactic component of education, this, right. the scientific facts, yes. you know, and I use the word facts very loosely because half of what we're teaching our students, half of what you and I learned while we were in school was wrong. We just didn't know which half. Right. Right. Yeah. We, we figured that out after we graduated, sure. you know, and so the first thing we teach our students is understanding that this is the state of the art today. You know, and you have to be flexible enough to let go of those facts that are wrong as we discover new knowledge. 
Sure. And so it's more important to learn how to gain that knowledge. Now, these students are much more advantaged by the technology than we were. Yes. You know, you know we had to go to the library to find that kind of information. Too. Our students, our children can find information in 15 minutes that would take us a night in a library to discuss. I would argue a lot quicker, man. I remember being in the library, looking over microfiche and going to find the, uh, the library books based on the library cards. And, and, and even, when, even when it moved to a more technological approach, even just having a, a software program that could help you still took time to go ahead and find those books. Now it's just a click away on your phone to find like really vital information. My point exactly. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. But we got enamored with the didactic and theoretical, and we separated it from the practical and the technical. Right. And veterinary medicine is 50-50. You know, we're not like human medicine in that in human medicine, when you graduate as an MD, you then specialize in various disciplines. We can do that in veterinary medicine, but right. a generalist and veterinary medicine is expected to be to have surgical skills too. Exactly. exactly. Uh, in, in human medicine is not. And so our end goal is totally different. And and so we rely on experiential learning as much as we rely on different tactics to teach a student how to approach a problem. And we tie them together so that there's relevance yeah. so that as they learn new concepts it is immediately relevant as to why they need to learn those concepts and how to use their technical skills to intervene in medical dilemmas. Well, that's perfect because I, you know, we've often heard the axiom, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so there's been plenty of just large swaths of information that we might learn in veterinary school and it gently seeps out of our brain because we're just not using it. It's vitally important and I appreciate that at the time I was learning it, but as time went on, it was difficult to recall because I just hadn't used it in a while. So when you think about that, if you don't use it, you lose it. How is distance learning occurring, particularly in the face of those technical skills you mentioned? Because as a board-certified surgeon, I think developing fine motor skills at an early stage in your professional development is really important. Just getting good at handling uh, materials and getting good with your hands. How are students, you know, coming out of Western University and graduating, having these skills despite being in the middle of a pandemic? So... That's probably the one area that we aren't doing as well as I wish we were. Oh, we'll talk uh, about that. Because, well, if you were a coach right. of a football team yes, and you had a star quarterback, at some point, you know, you could talk about the physics of a spiral on a football, et cetera, and where to place your, your fingers so that you can create that spiral. But eventually, you have to be on the field and allow the quarterback to throw the ball. Yes over and over and over again. And that's critical. That's important. And as much as we've developed virtual reality, et cetera, we have not developed it to the point that we can substitute real experiences. And so our greatest concern right now is how do we get back to a new normal that allows our students to learn from real experiences? One of the 
One of the tenets that I'm very proud of about our curriculum is that our students average 10 times the practical experiences as other schools. Uh, you are a graduate of Tuskegee, so you understand that Tuskegee uh, use that same approach. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, ten times but, You said 10 times the, the technical experience? Well, for instance, our students average 30 to 50 spays and neuters by the time they have graduated. Wow, your students average 30 to 50 spays and neuters by the yes, time they've graduated. That's by the time they've graduated. And that is close to 10 times the experiences on just, you know, of other schools. Sure. You know, every school has some students that have had that. Right. Our average for our graduates is that number. That's fantastic. And, and that's because we immerse our students in real life experiences from year one because we want them to learn in context, in, con in, in a contextual fashion, the concepts that the medical concepts as they see those diseases, you know, and so, and so our curriculum has been shifted more to a, I would say 60-40 ratio, 60% uh, didactic and conceptual knowledge and 40% practical experience. But if you go back to the quarterback again, you create a good quarterback by actually giving them practice, you know, uh, and a good quarterback still has to know how to read defenses and how to counter certain defenses and change the plays when they need to. So there's still a didactic theoretical portion that's critical and important, but you have to rely on the ingenuity of the student to know when they might need to even create a new play mm -hmm. that the coach never thought about, you that's know. That's super true, and I, I feel like I'm just super proud to see a lot of these young veterinary students, their level of creativity and how they have, particularly in, in the face of this crisis, and just in general, just generally speaking, I've seen a lot of students practicing how to suture on different modules, different materials. Have you seen any unique learning strategies that some professors have employed while they are trying to virtual teach or engage in e-learning and distance learning? Have there been any unique strategies you've seen, including something like just practicing suture on a particular model? Well, unfortunately, you know, as a dean, I'm kind of separated now from the front lines and a lot more so than, than I like. You know? And it, we've only been in this new paradigm for six weeks now. I mean, it's changing every week. It's crazy. But, you know, you know six weeks ago, uh, or once upon a time, we used to meet face to face. Right. You know, and 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 we would meet in small groups. You know, the other key to our our educational model was uh, by meeting in small groups, students can't hide. Yes. You know, and so each student gets not only to learn what we think is important as a veterinarian, but there's soft skills that we can focus on as well. You know, right. and so communication skills, as you know, are are critical in veterinary medicine. Our students get to practice. Commun communication is not a course. It's a blood sport. If you're not immersed in it, if you don't get a chance to practice it, you aren't very good at it when you graduate. If you're a member of a class of 100 or more, you don't get a lot of opportunity to practice communication, your communication skills with your professor or with your clients.
You really don't. And, and I mean, it's different styles of communication depending upon the forum, right? So there's that, that nervous anxiety, those butterflies in your stomach before you give a grand rounds presentation. But that level of nervousness and anxiety can be very different when you're having particularly a tense interaction or just a nervous interaction with a client because you're about to give them tough news or explain a very complicated medical topic. So you're right, that level of communication, not only is you don't get a lot of practice, but it also changes depending upon the situation. That's right. And so having a life at stake right. and communicating issues surrounding that life, right? there's a inner pressure that comes with that, that nobody thinks about, you know? And, and so by starting with paper cases, it's very easy to immerse students in that scenario. And when you divide a class of 100 up into groups of seven, uh, which is hard to do because that means you got 105 students instead of 100. But when you divide a class up into groups of seven, now you get a chance to practice, you know, but it's very labor intensive because, because now you have one faculty member per seven students, giving them the opportunity not just to figure out what they need to know, and giving them time to learn what they need to know, but then giving them the opportunity to cognitively create that script that they're going to be using for the rest of their professional career, you know, and to practice that on a daily basis, you know. And so at some point, our students actually sound a lot smarter than they are. But that's good because that means we're creating those soft skills along with the medical hard knowledge they need to know. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt. I, I've been often heard saying that there's no way, or I don't know how I would have been able to graduate veterinary medical school without my study group. I mean, they were an absolutely integral part of the process, meeting every night. Sometimes we'd have to get at least 10 or 15 minutes of what's happening in the class or just current events, topical news out of the way before we started hardcore studying. But just whether it was the fellowship and just interacting with my peers or helping me understand difficult concepts, the, the interaction and that fellowship with your students is just, it's invaluable. And how do students, while they're going through this curriculum, and particularly in distance learning, e-learning, virtual learning, how do they communicate with each other and sort of reimagine the possibility of that study group? So we still have small group learning. Our students are still divided into groups of seven. They just meet over Zoom now. Oh, perfect. Uh, you know, and we've been toying with this long before COVID-19, but right. COVID-19 but COVID-19 just said, everybody has to do this now. Right. It just thrusted us into this world that I know had been encroaching. It was coming. It was coming. Everybody's there. Yeah. But now the difference is, is that in a traditional curriculum, a lecturer might be sitting in front of his desk and talking to 100 to 200 students at a time. Our faculty, we have 15 groups of students going on at one time, and our faculty only has to focus on seven students at a time. The whole class meets at the same time, just as we did on campus, but they're in their group of seven by Zoom, and they're going over their cases and going through the same experiences that they went through on campus. What, what we don't know is how much we might lose not being face-to-face, -face. because when you're in a small room with seven students, you can tell the student that's drifting off. They don't have their attention. 
it's a little easier to know the student that hasn't prepared appropriately for the discussion. As you said, before. they can't hide. They, they can't. They still can't hide. Right. Even virtually, they can't hide. Even right? if it's virtual, you can't Even hide. If, the other thing the students are doing, and, and the students still get together after hours, just as we did when we were in school, virtually, and they still study together and they still test each other. But the difference is keeping the class cohesive. And so some of the things that the faculty have been doing, and I'm very proud of, of, of the things that we're doing, we care about their mental health and their mental well-being. And so every Saturday, uh, as a matter of fact, this afternoon around six, the fourth year class has a virtual wine and cheese meeting. Oh, that's so cool. That's so and cool. It's like a Zoom cocktail hour. Exactly. Exactly. And at least the dean doesn't have to pay for it. <laughs> and uh, we don't have to worry about them having to drive home afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's safe for everyone. It's safe for everyone. But yet, and we can address the social aspect and provide social support. For sure. And all those who have reservations about drinking by themselves, now they have people online that they can drink. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but every class has a weekly get together, uh, either a town hall meeting or a social virtual social event, just so that they can talk about our lives and our problems. Because eventually, because 96, 98% of students who get into vet school graduate. So once they get in, I consider them my colleagues. You know, they're just my unlicensed colleagues until they pass the boards. That's very well said. 96 to 98% of students who enter vet school end up graduating. That's a, yes. that's a testament to them and the school itself. Absolutely. And honestly, that was essentially insisted on by us. You know, previous graduates, previous students said, you know, we can't pay this kind of money and be treated as a, a pledging person for a sorority or for a fraternity. Right. You know, there has to be some accountability on the side of the faculty that says that, you know, and we'd like to see an open contract. That's what the syllabus is, the open contract that says, this is what you need to know. If you accomplish 80% of what we think you need to know, then you get a B. If the whole class does that, so be it. Right. You know, and once that paradigm changed, and as opposed to thinking that 10% of the class should always fail. I don't care how smart the class is, 10% should fail. I think democratizing education was a benefit for society and the student. That's genius. And the, the open contract, you, both, you mean figuratively and literally. It's an open contract, both literally saying, this is what you need to know, but then open in the sense of very transparent. You're not trying to hide or trick or have any sort of gotcha protocols that have students fail out. It just creates a really warm environment knowing that the school is going to be upfront in regards to your education. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, the one minute manager says it best. I think, um, as a consequence of social pressure, mm -hmm. in the one minute manager, they describe going to a bowling alley and okay. putting a sheet in front of the pins okay. and having somebody behind the sheet and you roll the ball and then they tell you how many pins you drop, you hit. Right. You know, but they don't, but they don't tell you where the remaining pins are. Right. 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 Well, that's, that's kind of how we used to teach people. Sure. You know, right. we didn't tell them what we were going to teach them ahead of time. We didn't write it down. We just kind of kept it close to the vest. Absolutely. You know? But now by giving them a syllabus up front, a contract up front, 
we remove that sheet, we remove that curtain. And now when you knock down a pen, you know you've knocked down a pen. 100%. And you know what it should mean by the time you get your degree. 100%. When we talk about those students uh, when they graduate and talk about how it's an open contract, and this is what you need to know by the time if, in order for you to graduate, what I'd like to find out from you is what's your message to all those students who are graduating right now in the face of this pandemic? I had so many anxieties, wishes, hopes, dreams when I graduated but I wasn't in the middle of a global crisis at the time. So when I think about these students, my heart goes out to them because I'm sure on top of all of the natural inherent anxieties and hopes and dreams they have, now they also have to battle this scenario. What's your message to them in terms of what they can expect leaving vet school? My message is twofold. First, my message is don't be a victim. Right. It is very easy for us to sit there, and sometimes I am reluctant to even talk about the stresses and challenges that COVID-19 has created for us, you know, but we're all in it. Yes. You know, the 32 deans of veterinary schools in the nation are in the same boat, right? And so the sets of faculty for each of those schools are in the same boat, you know, and we all have to adapt at our particular area. So avoid the victimization uh, mentality, you know, because that leads to negative feelings and negative goals that will not help your career, right. you know. Some of the students right now, I mean, we've only been in this about six weeks, but some students are, are now saying, well, you know what, maybe I should get my money back, some of my money back, because you didn't do everything you promised me. You know, well, that wasn't our desire. You know, we're suffering from the same conditions that you are. And frankly, I'm extremely proud of of the response that our faculty uh, made to make sure that our seniors graduate on time Mm. and to make sure that our first year and second year and third year students are going to move to the next level on time. And yes, there have been some significant impacts, but not so much that I'm worried about their competence. And so my second message is don't be so myopic. Okay. Let's look at what we were able to do, not what we weren't able to do. And frankly, my message to the seniors will be, and I'm giving a little bit, a little bit of my dean's charge to the senior class right now, but my message to the seniors is look at what you faced, and yet you still are going to get a DVM degree. So the globe just gave you a kicking ass. Right. And you were still standing. You know, your message ought to be, is that all you got? <laughs> you triumphed overall, just having yes. that intuitiveness and that perseverance. You know, you mentioned, you said that you're extremely proud of the faculty, that they are able to marshal their forces, resources, and expertise to help these students graduate on time. You know, we talked about their message to the students, but what's your message to the faculty and the staff and all those people working behind the scenes to kind of manage uh, the veterinary medical education in the midst of a crisis? My job is to be the cheerleader. And my message to them is recognize the, the accomplishment that they have just made. Recognize, first of all, is nothing short of startling that we got through this. And it's not just Western. This is, you know, this is every other university seems to have managed this well so far. Now, where we go from here, it's going to be a challenge. And everybody is not going to survive the new normal, the new you, normal. Know, you know, but... 
at this point, give yourself a break and pat yourself on the back for what you've done. Because we have managed to this point, we have managed to salvage the careers of our charges. That's interesting. And that's, and that's, that's huge to me, you know, and they should be recognized for that. I happen, you know, uh, I know that I've lost a lot of sleep just, you know, fighting for students and, and reallocating resources, et cetera. Right. But I can't imagine how much sleep the faculty lost changing their routine and changing and doing it remotely. Right. You know, not being able to get into the office as easily. I wrote a message to them in the middle of the transition right. that we're as much on the front line as, as frontline healthcare uh, workers. Um, mm-hmm. Our job as veterinary academicians is to prepare the workforce replacements, you know, to prepare that next generation, you know, so that they can be on the front lines. And, yeah, absolutely. you know, and so we don't get to pull back either. And it's hard to make that connection, to remember that connection sometimes. Well, definitely. Not only do I give a lot of credit to those who are literally on the front lines facing this crisis, both our human colleagues in in human medicine, veterinary medical colleagues on the front lines, you know, fit at the granular level where the rubber meets the ground, interacting with clients, pets, animals, controlling our, making sure our food supply is safe and doing research. But then also there needs to be a foundation to help replace those or replenish those or add to that level of expertise out there. So the level of expertise and talent that we are benefiting from right now, it's not static. It's not going to be there in perpetuity. It definitely needs to be replaced. And that's where veterinary medical schools are just vitally important is like you said, replacing those on the front line. So that's really well said, beautifully said. I'm curious to know what you prognosticate for the future. Now, of course, you don't have a crystal ball, right? Nobody does. But I'm very curious to know just in conversations you've had just with the administration and with maybe other deans, should we expect this level of distance learning, e-learning, virtual learning all the way into the fall of, of 2020? So as far as this crisis is concerned, the next challenge is to determine what we consider is, is the new safe zone. The new safe zone. The virus is, COVID-19 is among us. Yes. We're not getting rid of it. And we can't hunker down until a vaccine is developed. It's going to take at uh, least a year or more. Yeah. Right. I think a vaccine is 18 months away. I agree. Nobody has that much vacation. Okay. I can't and, be in quarantine that long. Right. No. And the institutions can't pay people to hunker down that long. Right. Right. So... We have some pain ahead of us. Public institutions, public state-supported, state-related institutions are going to suffer serious budget cuts over the next year or two because when you have 20 million people out of work, you're going to get a drop in tax revenues. So there's going to be an impact in the future. Yeah, it reverberates through almost every field. Everybody, like you said, is feeling that pain. And at some point, it may affect the student's ability to pay, even pay for their education. Yeah, no doubt. Veterinary medical education, regardless, or any medical education, it's expensive. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's our first challenge, you know, of financial survival. And so we're now at the stage where it is time to be proactive 
and decide how much risk are we willing to take and how do we mitigate as much risk as we can. Right. All right. Because the shelter in place strategy is merely to make sure that there's a ventilator and a bed available in case I need it. Yes. Once I'm exposed. Right. But, you know, and we're all going to get exposed Absolutely. eventually. We're either going to get exposed to the wild strain right. or we're going to get exposed to a vaccine strain. Yeah. Right. At but least 70 or 80 percent until herd immunity is reached. You're exactly, exactly. Right. until yeah. herd immunity is reached. And 90 percent of us are going to survive the encounter. We just don't know which ones are in that 90 percent. Right. And that's the fear. Yeah, that is. We the want to make fear. sure that we we protect those that are in the high risk category. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be in the high risk category just because of my age and my race. Wait, so for, wait, 47 is a high risk category? I don't understand. I'm about <laughs> no, I, I hear you. That's something that I say the word fortunately, uh, but I mean it in the sense of I'm fortunate that the media is covering the disproportionate impact that novel coronavirus is having on black and brown people and particularly minority communities. Obviously, I don't mean, fortunately, it's impacting those communities. That goes without saying, but it's fortunate that it's being covered, being discussed, and it sounds like certain administrations in certain states are actually taking proactive measures. So you're right. I mean, these statistics or the demographics at which the virus is affecting people, that affects huge swaths of life, including deans like yourself or veterinary medical students or professors. Uh, and that can be particularly unsettling in that scenario. But don't get me wrong, race in and of itself in this particular case is not a comorbidity factor. Right. The comorbidity factor is the result of differential access to proper health care. Very well said. All right. And the fact is, is that as a result of that differential access, our race is more than likely to suffer from unmitigated high blood pressure. Our race is more likely to suffer from uncontrolled diabetes or diabetes in general, largely because of social factors, not racial factors. 100%. But it is expressed in racial statistics. Yes, yes. And so, yes, so we need please, to be yeah. careful about, about how we phrase that. Right. No, I, I completely agree. Because when you, when you frame it in terms of a racial impact, then they think there's something inherent about the race that makes people more susceptible or more prone to the impacts of it. When this really is, there's either structural and institutional issues that have caused these issues. And I, Absolutely. I think, this I is not this, well this is not like sickle cell anemia. Right. Very well said. And in fact, you know, again, I know this is kind of a super nerdy thing to say, but I've often thought about looking at the disproportionate, our differential impact in the veterinary medical field is how veterinary medical access is different depending upon the demographics of the community. I know that is being studied a lot on the human side, but I, I think I'm very interested in to see studies on just how this differential impact is affecting the veterinary medical community. So that's something for the future, of course. So I look forward to your work on in that area because it's needed. And I urge you to follow through on that, on your intent. Thank you, man. I, I'll be honest. You are just an incredible inspiration. And like I said, I rarely 
rarely uh, get a chance to just have just the generosity of time from a dean like yourself. And like I said, I'm just so happy that you were able to join us today. Listen, if you ever have the opportunity, would you ever mind coming back for a round two so that we could talk some more? Oh, I'd be happy to do so. I'd be uh, happy. I've enjoyed the conversation myself. It's a, such a needed conversation. Thank you for joining Anything Possible. And everybody tuning in, watching, uh, this has been fantastic talking to Dr. Phil Nelson, Dean of Western University College of Veterinary Medicine. He's just uh, an absolute font of knowledge and experience, and it was wonderful having him. And until next time, never forget, there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.